This week on Foresight Radio, Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast with best-selling authors David Benjamin and David Komlos. I'm your host, Tom Kalopoulos, and Foresight Radio is brought to you by our good friends at Wasabi Technologies, the leader in the next generation of cloud-based data storage. You can learn more about them at wasabi.com. Here's my conversation with David Benjamin and David Komlos. So David and David, thanks so much for joining us. The first thing I have to begin with is sort of deconstructing this notion of complexity, which you write about so eloquently in your book, Cracking Complexity. And I love the Marshall Goldsmith quote in the forward that basically says, look, most leaders treat complex challenges as though they were simple, everyday, complicated tasks. What's the difference? I mean, I think we all use this term complexity and complicated synonymously, but you make the point in the book that the two are not in fact the same. Correct. Leaders regularly encounter both complicated challenges and complex challenges, and there is a big difference. Both types of challenges are difficult, uh, but they're very different. Complicated challenges are solved problems. I'll give you some examples. If your car breaks down and you need to fix it, That's a complicated challenge unless you're an expert, unless you're a mechanic. If you're installing a new accounting system or a new performance management system or a new HR system or a new order management system, all of those are examples of complicated challenges. They're linear challenges. They're typically technical challenges. And they may be very difficult to the novice or the person experiencing these for the first time. But the good news is they've been solved many times before. There's lots of experts out there available to you to do for you what they've done for others. They know what success looks like. They have a checklist. They know how to follow the checklist. They know how to apply their gray hair of having been involved with these kinds of challenges before. And the right approach to a complicated challenge is to actually bring in the experts and have them interview a bunch of people to figure out the lay of the land and then apply their solution. Complex challenges are entirely different. These are multidimensional challenges with many moving parts in unpredictable ways, with unpredictable impact on uh, one another. And these are human challenges where it's not just enough to solve the challenge, hard enough on its own, but it's not enough to just solve the challenge. It's imperative to align and mobilize a critical mass of key influencers and stakeholders and doers and decision makers if you are to see sustained execution happen. Figuring out your growth strategy is a complex challenge. Turning around a business unit is a complex challenge. Figuring out your digital strategy, um, you know, launching a new product and taking it global, figuring out a, a loss of patent and what you're going to do about it in government, you know, figuring out how to stem the opioid epidemic or how to reform healthcare. These are all examples of complex multidimensional challenges where there are no predetermined solutions. They have to be solved fresh each time and where you need that alignment. And without distinguishing between complicated and complex, leaders are accustomed to using one type of approach, which is strike an internal task force. And if that doesn't work, bring in consultants and have them interview people. It's a very long approach uh, and it doesn't necessarily lead to the buy-in alignment and mobilization that's necessary. So that was David Kamlos. Is that right? We're going to try to keep the Davids straight here. Correct. So, so, so David Kamlos, I, I want to come back to, to this in, in a few minutes because I think you capture the essence of something which is very, very important here. And in every book I read, there are these takeaways that sort of strike me like a hammer on the head. One of the takeaways from what you said, and David Benjamin, I, give me a comment on this, is that there are certain things you should not outsource. And complexity 
is one of those things. Did I get that right? Because the, the complicated stuff, you can find someone to outsource that to. But the complex stuff, you really need to keep in-house. Why is that? And where do we go astray in, in trying to get the experts to deal with our complex challenges? So when you uh, outsource strategy or um, growth or an important plan um, to somebody from the outside of the organization, again, the approach that they would generally take is what's always worked in the past for them on whatever complicated and complex challenges they've worked on, which is to set themselves up as the hub of a hub and spoke model, um, interviewing people and populating the solution that they understand well. The problem with that model is that um, the people from within and around your organization who are intimately familiar with what goes on um, and what is going on with the challenge, they um, are in conversation with somebody at the hub uh, through interviews and ultimately the person at the hub or the group at the hub is gonna do the solving. Um, the people who are interviewed don't feel ownership or necessarily even understand the solution. Um, their involvement was uh, in the form of answering questions and providing input to the hub. And because they don't uh, have their fingerprints all over the solution that results, they don't recognize it, they don't understand it, they don't necessarily understand that their voice was heard and their concerns were, um, you know, whether they were included or dismissed, they don't understand why. And so they don't own it. And because they don't own it, they won't execute it. Now, if you don't outsource the challenge. If you get those same people deeply involved in figuring out the solution that they do understand and believe in, if they've all felt heard in that process, if they feel a sense of ownership for it, not only um, will they execute in order to um, you know, reflect the belief that it's the right solution, they will be driven to show the organization that they got it right. Um, and so you get that heightened sense of ownership and accountability for making it work. So we all find ourselves involved in, in these sorts of, of challenges that seem to be overwhelming. There's no starting point. They're, they're so complex that everything is, is interwoven. I, I re recall once uh, uh, Michael Hammer, who wrote Reengineering the Corporation with Jim Champy, uh, saying that some problems are so intricately woven into the fabric of the organization, it's kind of like trying to take the fat out of hamburger. You, know, you have to boil the whole damn thing so that the fat will rise. You can't surgically remove uh, some of these challenges and address them at that at that level. It seems to me that people must have thought about this for a long time. I mean, you've written the book, but before the book, there was a history here. And you talk a bit about cybernetics and Stafford Beer. Tell us a bit about that history and that and that that legacy that that was created that you folks leveraged, because I find that to be a fascinating backstory that, frankly, I hadn't heard about. I wasn't aware of. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, complexity isn't new. Um, there have always been problems that uh, people have had to deal with that, um, you know, sort of defy pat solutions and haven't been solved before. What's happening today um, is that complex challenges are compounding and they're coming at us faster than ever. So over the last 50, 7,500 years, there have been a lot of very uh, smart people who've spent time um, pondering how do you do better on complexity. And they have each, in their own way, contributed some great thinking um, and observations and insights. And kind of what has not been a necessity is for this to be mainstream understanding until recently. So they were speaking largely to academic audiences and, and organizations and associations of people 
who are um, you know thinking abstractly about complexity, but today uh, everybody's thinking about it. Everybody's encountering it, and you can't get away with just thinking about it. You need to get to action fast on the right things. So we feel like what we've been able to do, uh, certainly in our own experiences over the last 17 years, 20 years doing this, is apply a lot of great thinking from other people, uh, synthesize it, distill it, uh, turn it into really a formulaic approach that as far as we've experienced works every time. Can I take you back to a moment that you mentioned in, in the book uh, to, to sort of leverage off of that last thought? You talked about Stafford, and I, I knew some of his contemporaries, Buckminster Fuller, Russell Ackoff. These were familiar names. I'd never heard of Stafford, but you mentioned in the book that you actually met him a few days before his passing in the hospital. Could you talk about that a bit? That, that was a very poignant moment from the sounds of it. Absolutely. Um, Stafford was really a giant in many ways, and we had never heard of Stafford. Um, we became associated with the other scientists who were revolving around him and helping him uh, invent some of the things he was inventing and, and fine-tune them. We were fortunate to meet him just really on his deathbed and, you know, um, had a very brief, very um, impactful conversation about how we were going to try to work with some of the things that he had uh, put out there and fine-tune them and take them forward. And um, Stafford was a very complex individual. Uh, what a life and what a contribution. Unfortunately, we only got to know him in, in his last days. And uh, I think, you know, if he had even a sense of, of what's transpired over the last 20 years, informed by some of his thought and some of his invention, I think he'd be delighted, absolutely delighted. It sounds like one of those passing the baton moments. You know, I, I get goosebumps just kind of thinking about what that must have been like uh, to talk to him about uh, about these these subjects that you then carried on and and uh, and wrote the book on, on the topic of. You know, there was another figure when you talked about Stafford in the book. The the a couple of folks came to mind. One was uh, Sir Karl Popper, who one of the philosophers of the last century, who talked about the difference between clock problems and cloud problems. And, you know, he would say that one of the, the biggest clock problems we ever addressed was putting a man on the moon and bringing home safely to Earth again. And you allude to that in the book. You talk about that as being a very complicated problem, but not necessarily a complex problem. And what Popper told us was that clock problems could be solved. They were mathematical. They were formulaic. They had one solution. Cloud problems, which seem to be complex in your vernacular, are problems that don't have a singular solution. We're constantly sort of chasing after the solution. The context is changing much too rapidly. What's happened contextually in our world that makes complexity and this notion of a cloud problem so much more of an issue than perhaps it had been in the last century or in centuries before? So whereas you could have gotten away with um, taking linear, thoughtful, progressive steps towards an answer in the past, um, and maybe spent six months to three years um, ultimately figuring out a solution that works and, and getting down to the task of uh, implementing it. Um, in other words, taking sort of a clock approach to the cloud problems. What's gone on lately is just the acceleration of um, the, the, the pace of change and also the compounding of all sorts of things that are changing all at once so that you can no longer afford um, to figure things out in a linear way, slowly, et cetera. And you, you see lots of methodologies and approaches that are out there today talking about 
you know, experimentation and trying things and fast fail and amplifying what works and stopping what isn't working and, you know, allowing people to fail in the organization because that's how you make progress. Um, that's all true. And that is all about getting to the speed that is necessary today to deal with cloud problems. What the formula does is really amplify the way that people can be brought together um, to accelerate the process of figuring out what to try. So you do still have to go slow to go fast. It's not like you can just be um, trying everything and seeing what happens. You still have to take some time to think that through, but what you can't afford any longer is to go slow in order to go fast. You have to go fast at going slow to go fast. Which is, which is challenging. As human beings, we find that to be enormously challenging. You have this wonderful analogy, by the way, in the book that, that's kind of stuck with me. You talk about complexity and you use an a analogy of the physical world. You say, you know, imagine an earthquake and a typhoon and a flood and a hurricane all happen at once. And in the midst of all this chaos, aliens land on the planet. And as though that wasn't enough, we get hit by a meteor. And it kind of gives you this very visceral sense for what it's like to live in today's organizations, in today's social, political, economic chaos. Things are changing so rapidly. And I think to a large degree, we feel as though they're out of control, that, that we don't have the ability to, uh, to manage all this, all this chaos, right? And you use this term, which I love, by the way, you had a, a bunch of things in there that really stuck with me, but this term engineering serendipity, which sounds like an oxymoron, right? How can we engineer serendipity? And you talk about controlled explosions, and these are wonderful metaphors, but help me ground that. How do, I, how do I take this chaos, this overwhelming sense of chaos and incomprehensibility of the problem, and even begin to chip away with it with things like engineering serendipity? I think this brings to life even uh, some of the, the uh, thoughts and, and writings that you've had um, on corporate instinct, right? The formula appears to, to us at least as an embodiment of how do you engineer corporate instinct? How do you make it happen on demand? Um, so that you are responding to stimulus at a pace that's both you know, reasonable and at scale in the right way and being able to sort of institutionalize that as a capability. Um, engineering serendipity is about you know, not waiting for happy accidents to happen, uh, water cooler conversations and so forth you bring all the right people into the room. You think through very carefully um, the challenge that you're faced with. You frame challenges as questions. You know, what do we have to do now and over the next three years to double our growth rate? Or what do we have to do now and over the next 90 days to realize the benefits of our merger or so forth? And then you look at, you know, who are all the right people I need to inform the thinking on this challenge and who do I need bought in? And when you start looking at the world through this lens of who are all the right players, what's the diversity of talent I need to bring to bear, then you're not waiting for those people to uh, encounter one another in conversation, happenstance by accident. You're actually proactively tapping into that talent base. But you also say in the book that it's not about brain power, right? It's, it's about engineering thousands of, of high-speed, high-quality connections, what you were just talking about. You know, when I talk to organizations about solving complex problems, what you turn to be, you know, complex problems, they typically look for the smartest and the brightest. What are the best practices? And it almost seems as though you're, you're steering us away from that towards a, a different model of problem solving, which is maybe is not the model that we've been trained in classically to use to solve 
problem. So can you talk about that? How do, how do, how do I begin? If it's not about brain power, what is it about? Where do I begin to chip away at this? Yeah, and it's not that the, the brightest and, and uh, best and most experienced people in the organization don't have a, a role to play in figuring things out and leading execution and influencing others, um, but it can't be them alone. And so we talk about this notion of requisite variety, which comes from mm. the, the area of cybernetics from a gentleman named Ross Ashby. I love that, by the way, because, you know, we've all heard that term, and I think most of us have no idea what that term uh, actually means. And I, I love the fact that you talked about it in the book, and you did so in a very clear and concise way. I now get it. But yeah, talk to us a bit about that, because I thought that was a pretty important point that you made. Yeah, so there's this uh, natural law called the law of requisite variety, which basically says that only variety destroys variety. And so when mm. you're dealing with something that's very high variety in its nature, you're only... Um, opportunity to deal with it is to bring a matching amount of variety in terms of the people who are going to figure it out. And so when you really think about variety and really stretch your thinking about what that means, um, it, it means the best and brightest. It also means the newest into the organization. And it also means people with long tenure. And it also means the cynics. Um, and it also means the people who are going to be uh, tasked with solving or implementing the solution. And um, those who may not have a direct stake, but have a particular thinking style or personality that's required to help the entire group get to great solutions. And really importantly, um, it means stretching your thinking beyond the boundaries of your own organization and getting into the ecosystem and bringing in partners and maybe customers uh, and experts in your market. And sometimes even into parallel realities, another industry, uh, for example, where a similar challenge has been solved and getting that entire group together. Um, and tasking them by working directly with each other and not through an intermediary to figure things out. And uh, that becomes a large group and that requires structure. And that's where the engineering comes in. Um, it's not about sort of hoping something great happens when you have those 43 people in the room together. It's about uh, making sure that something important is going to happen by structuring it, applying discipline and giving um, form and architecture to the way they interact. You're reminding me of a conversation I had with a, uh, a, a general who taught military doctrine to the, to the um, Joint Forces some years ago, uh, John Croker, and I asked him a question at the time, this was during the Desert Storm uh, period, I asked him, how do you deal with the uncertainty in a battlefield? And his response just floored me. He said, the only way to deal with uncertainty is to match it with an equal amount of uncertainty. And that kind of plays to what you're talking about. But you know what? That is such a hard thing to wrap your head around. It, it's not the way we've been trained. And I wonder when you go to an organization and you help them to understand this notion of complexity and how to deal with complex problems and complex challenges, how do you get them to wrap their head around this? Because it is so different from the way we typically approach problem solving. Is there a methodology here uh, that, that you have them apply in order to be able to change the way that they approach the problem? Well, I would start by saying, I'm sure David Cobbles will have more to say about this, but I would start by saying, that uh, generally speaking, when you're dealing with something that's really complex, there's something really uh, important at stake. Mm. And most often when leaders are beginning to wrap their head around what we're talking about, it's after they've tried for several months or several years to make progress on one of those perplexing and confounding challenges um, that they know they need to find resolution to somehow, but they failed uh, in every earlier attempt. And sometimes failure means we got the strategy and we didn't execute it, or sometimes failure means we tried to execute the strategy and it didn't look like it was the right strategy, but it's been years now and we're still dealing with this and we haven't made progress. So 
So there's that level of readiness to hear an alternative approach. The other nice thing about the formula is that it is um, significantly faster and significantly less expensive in terms of people's time um, and the amount of effort and the amount of time you're going to require from people. So it's worth a try. We've, we've been failing. Let's try this new approach. And uh, generally speaking, when we're explaining it to people, if there's any method to what we do, it's to connect them with other leaders who've mm. been down this road and have solved something and, and let them do the describing of the experience. That's exactly right, Tom. I mean, in the early days, and we've been doing this for close to 20 years, in the early days, I can't even like reverse engineer how we got leaders to try this in the mm. early, early days, just because uh, it, was, it was very difficult. But we would meet leaders who, as David said, were grappling and, you know, just with something really, really big. And they said, okay, let's give this a whirl. But five years in, you know, with, with the formula having a track record, it really does come to um, A, people being very thirsty for this, B, the pace of change has has become you know unrelenting and it's accelerating and there's just this this acute need for better ways to um to perform and faster at the pace of change and as david said now you just put leaders in touch with leaders and they just tell each other what, what's possible you're listening to foresight radio and we're taking a quick break to thank our sponsor of this episode wasabi technologies the leader in the next generation of cloud storage Find out more about Wasabi at wasabi.com. Thinking about moving your data storage to the cloud? Wasabi is enterprise-class cloud storage at one-fifth the price of Amazon S3 and up to six times faster with no fees for egress or API requests. Wasabi's low-cost, high-speed, fully secure storage blows away the competition, including Google and Microsoft. Disruption starts here. Do the math for yourself and start a free trial at wasabi.com. And now back to my conversation with David Benjamin and David Komlos. So I want to come back to this notion of the complexity formula and, and the 10 steps that you outline in the book and, and focus in on a few of the steps that I found especially interesting. But if we, if we back up a little bit and, and we look at the, the, um, the problem again, one of the dimensions of it that you discuss is this shift from scarcity thinking, which is an era where we manage things. Uh, you know, we, we built uh, products that were finite and formulaic to this era of abundance. And we hear a lot about abundance thinking lately, but talk to me about how you apply it within the book. Yeah, I, I think Clay Shirky um, said it best when he said, abundance breaks more things than scarcity. Oh, I love that. And we're seeing business models that are built up on a scarcity model, meaning, you know, in the past, if I needed a ride, I had to go through a taxi dispatch that had access to all the different cars that were available and they were able to thrive. The taxi dispatch was a good business to be in. It had access to supply and me with demand had to go through an intermediary. The same is true for booking travel, et cetera. And as you um, give access to the end user, to all the actual abundance that's available, um, that's been latent, when you activate that and make it available to the end user, it, it changes industries. The same is true for us in the way we view talent. There is no shortage of talent. And this is getting back to your question about brain power and you know, the best and brightest. Talent is table stakes. 
and brain power is table stakes, necessary but insufficient. It's widely available, it's ubiquitous, and what is lacking are ways in which to tap into latent talent and you know, activate it to solve challenges. And so the prevailing model for solving challenges is bring in the few who are best and brightest, whether they're internal to your organization, strike a task force, or bring in the best consultants, the best and brightest, and have them um, orchestrate you know, the solving. Um, that was the model that continues to be a prevailing model, but there, you know, when you can actually um, tap into the latent talent that is inside and all around your organization, you don't need to go through an intermediary task force or consulting firm to get at it. You can actually apply the formula, for example, and, um, and tap into that abundance of talent. That changes the way you power up in the face of complexity. That mm. changes the pace at which you can get after big challenges. You know, it's funny, I, I mentioned John Croker earlier, the, the general who taught doctrine. One of the examples he gave me that, that uh, I think ties into what you were just saying is that if he, he put me in a hypothetical Humvee in the middle of a dust storm on, on the desert, a sandstorm rather, and he said, uh, let's say you're driving at 60 miles an hour and the sandstorm kicks up, what's your instinct? Your instinct is to slow down. And it seems to me when I look at most organizations, we're so flooded with data and with information and with intelligence and analytics that frankly, it's slowing us down in many ways. It's not speeding us up. And I, and I have to wonder how much of that is, is based on the fact that we just, we haven't been trained to deal with the complexity of the world today. I mean, our educational system seems to be failing us when it comes to teaching us the skills we need to deal with these issues. Do, do you see that as well, or, or am, I, am I off base there? Yeah, I mean, we haven't been trained uh, to think this way or to approach complexity this way. We also um, tend to train leaders to believe that, um, you know, they are failing as leaders if they can't figure things out or if they mm. can't, you know, see the way forward, if they can't envision the future. Um, and so they need to be retrained to recognize that complexity is, it's not them. I mean, complexity is bigger than any individual or small group. Uh, that law of requisite variety, again, you know, says the only way to deal with it is to get together a large number of people with sufficient variety. So the, the training is both a barrier in terms of what, how we've learned to approach these things and that, you know, nobody ever got fired for hiring the big five, those sorts of tenets. Um, and also the fact that we have, uh, you know, been trained, in fact, to the contrary of how we have to think about this and how we have to approach this. And the whole notion of leadership and how leadership behaves when um, facing the really big problems just needs to be re-understood. You've got a great visual, a leadership visual in the book, which I, which I loved, the, the lion at the desk. Uh, talk to us a bit about that, because I thought that was a very cool way to sort of encapsulate a, a lot of the, the challenges that, that leaders face in, in taking action on some of these issues. Yeah, so basically uh, we, we use a metaphor of uh, somebody arriving in their office one morning and finding a ferocious lion sitting on their desk. And, um, you know, when we're talking in front of audiences or when we're talking to individual leaders, we'll say, what would you do in that case? And of course, everybody says, uh, the moment I see the lion, I've slammed the door and I'm running in the other direction. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Absolutely. So, we do that on a daily basis. I think that, that sort of describes, you know, you walk into your office each day and there's a different lion sitting on your desk. Right. But there's, there's a lot going on in your human nervous system uh, in that split second when you decide to take action. There's there's the sensing of the fact that there's a lion sitting there. There's the absorbing of the implications of that and that 
you know, this line is somewhere it shouldn't be and lines like to eat people. Mm. Um, the, the thinking about what that means and what are my options, the deciding on an option and enacting the one you've chosen. And all of that happens in the, in the blink of an eye because you are one integrated nervous system as a human being. And so when you think about, you know, that metaphorical line in terms of other challenges facing organizations, and you think of the organization um, as the entity that's encountering the lion, there's a nervous system, but it's fragmented. It's distributed across many siloed functions and siloed business units. Um, the absorbers aren't necessarily in direct contact with the thinkers. Uh, and so there's this linear process of needing to you know, process, uh, first of all, recognize that there's a lion, process what that means, think through options, decide on one, uh, and then bring the action plan to a wholly different group to, to do something about it. That is slow, that is ineffective, um, and you really need to instead think about those functions, sensing, absorbing, thinking, deciding, and acting as being one effort that, uh, you know, with all of those different people who participate in those roles within whatever the context of the challenge is, getting them all together to, to just resolve things fast and get to action after they've figured things out together. Are you guys familiar with, uh, with the ODA loop um, and the process that that details, observe, orient, decide, and, and, and act that's been used uh, in, in military aviation for some time? It sounds very similar to what you just described. Yeah, and a lot of the time, from my understanding, ODA is in the context of a pilot flying and encountering stimulus that has to, right. you know, the, he or she has to re respond to. The difference between that and complexity and ODA that's, you know, relevant to complexity is that ODA has to be done in the context of many individuals all together, mm. all at once. So, you know, a, a pilot can, can be faced with a threat or, or an opportunity and, you know, observe it very clearly and decide very quickly what to do about it. Um, a organization... Um, no, no single individual can observe exactly what's going on, whether it's a threat or an opportunity. No single individual can think through all the implications and come up with a solution that all of a sudden the organization is going to, you know, execute in a unified manner. Mm -hmm. so ODA has to be done in large groups where you end up with um, a, a richness of understanding of what's really going on, what really matters, what doesn't matter. And then you end up with a, a unified large group of people, a critical mass of people who can then execute much the same way that a pilot would need to execute on a threat or an opportunity. Which is a fascinating way to look at it because this is ultimately the, the, the complexity of the organization itself has, has increased monumentally uh, through virtualization, through globalization. We're dealing with many decision makers, many observers that are all simultaneously trying to take action and coordinating that action is a, is a difficult thing to do if at all if at all possible but you lay out what you call the complexity formula which are these 10 steps that make up the, the heart and soul of the of the book we can't go through all of them but there were a couple that caught my attention that i was hoping we could talk a bit about one was this notion of eliminating noise and i think that we all on a personal level we sort of get that but talk to us about what you mean when you when you talk about eliminating noise as part of your complexity formula there is such an abundance of uh, data and information and now knowledge and such a widespread availability of it. It's ubiquitous. Um, and when you're dealing with any kind of challenge that has a lot of moving parts, it's very hard to judge what matters and what you should pay attention to and um, what is literally just noise. 
Uh, and so you really have to um, think through as you're getting together a requisite variety group, what is it that they need uh, in order to sort of level set uh, where they start their conversation? Uh, what from all of the available inputs and stimulus do they not have uh, that they will need in order to get started? And then we also suggest recommending very heavily on the tacit knowledge, information, data, beliefs, opinions that they carry into the room. Uh, it gets back to getting the right people together. When you bring the right people together and you feed them enough information to have sort of a baseline understanding where they can start, they will very quickly um, be talking about what really matters in terms of the challenge that they're trying to solve. The, the second thing that I think is really profoundly important to understand is that if you embrace this notion of variety, um, you are bringing together people who do not share the same language. Mm. They might come from different silos within the organization. They might come from separate organizations. They might be engineers and doctors and patients in the room together. And um, it's very easy to rush through the task of getting everyone sort of with a shared understanding of the basic language and what they're dealing with and try to get to action before they've had a chance to level set. So another way that we eliminate the noise is to give them time to, and in fact, hold them back from trying to solve anything or figure anything out until they've had a frustrating set of conversations with each other, sharing information, coming to understand each other's, um, uh, each other's positions on things. And I say frustrating because what they really want to do is get down to the task of solving, but you can't, and you can't get to action until you've got shared understanding. So I get all that, but you know, I, I would submit that we've almost become addicted to the noise to, to the point where we welcome it and, and we want to create more of it. You know, our devices, which, which surround us, the data, which we're, we're swimming in, drowning in, in some cases, um, there's always someone on the team or a few folks on the team that want to just create more and more noise. And they think by adding more and more data, we will make the problem clearer and clearer when in fact, what we're doing is obfuscating it with the, the volumes of data that, that we have. How do we, how do you deal with that piece of it? There is, there seems to be an addiction to um, data and stimulus right. and we, we seem to be lacking the ability to go deep now in exploration and dialogue and search for meaning and search for deeper insights. We are satisfying our brains with superficial, right? And, and, um, and so a lot about the formula is getting a large group of people that each bring in vast amounts of data, information, experience, expertise to get into um, meaningful dialogue about meaning and less so about what other data are we missing and, and so on and so forth. The, the complex challenges that we have in the world, of course, they require a good amount of data and the right data. But data is, is not what is going to solve the multidimensional challenges that we face in societies and large organizations. It's rare that we're missing pivotal data that we can't get our hands on uh, with a little bit of effort. What's, what's really missing is deeper levels of knowledge and shared understanding and wisdom. Um, you know, again, informed by data, but not you know, high, high, high volumes of data. I wanna actually just very quickly come back to the notion of instinct. Certainly what we've observed is when you get the right people together, they have collectively a tremendous instinct 
for what matters and what doesn't matter. And, and they might try to defer figuring things out by saying we don't have all the research that needs to be done. We don't have all the data that we need access to. But if you push them um, to take sort of group guesses based on everyone in the room and what they tacitly believe, you'll quickly find that they're right far more often than they're wrong. Hmm. Um, and probably get to the heart of the matter much faster than any kind of research really could. And we've been in cases where, you know, the instruction to the group is to uh, take your best guess and state your assumptions, and we'll go test the assumptions later. And I would say from my experience, having observed that uh, the assumptions are almost always, uh, you know, validated afterwards, as opposed to being um, uh, shown to be false. You know, what I love about what you both are doing and what you talk about in the book and what you just kind of captured in, in your comments is that you're sort of upping the human game. You're taking a very human uh, approach to, uh, to problem solving. And I think in an era where we're surrounded with, you know, prolific technology and an abundance of, of data, it's important to sort of look at how that changes the role of the human being in the process of problem solving. And in many ways, it enhances it. I think it, it elevates it, right? It, it creates more value, but it's a different way of looking at how we, how we create that value. And that brings me to, to complex formula step number seven, which I adore. It is what you call the new currency of solving complex challenges. Uh, and you call it uh, putting people on a collision course, which sounds pretty nasty, but, uh, but you know what? I'm drawn to it. Tell us a bit about how it helps to put people on the collision course. What does that mean? And what's the benefit of that? We uh, certainly believe that the word interaction is far too weak um, to explain what has to happen amongst the group of people that you've brought them together. An interaction is passive. A collision is intentional. Mm. A collision um, you know, suggests friction and tension and abruptness and import. And we mean all of that when we talk about collisions as opposed to interactions. And ultimately, it is a human experience. And the experience of colliding with someone else is a very human experience. And it gets you emotional. It gets you off your game. It gets you off your behavior. And uh, what we do, what the formula does, is it forces people into all sorts of collisions with all sorts of other people very, very rapidly uh, in ways that they don't expect, can't anticipate, and can't rig. Um, and, and that's how you get at what the group knows and what the group believes by having people shed um, the things they came in with, their beliefs, their biases. Uh, and, and again, we have found that when you do this fast enough, in high enough volume with, with great quality, uh, these collisions are what drive solutions and drive a will to execute. And importantly, Tom, it only takes uh, a day, two days, three days um, when you know how to orchestrate these collisions and we lay it out in the book, how to do that, to get at what would normally take many months or longer of effort, both in terms of the quality of the thinking that emerges, the quality of the solutions, whether they're strategic or tactical, and the buy-in and alignment that is so elusive under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. Well, it's intentional. I think that that's the piece of it that, that, that draws me is often these collisions happen, as you said, around the water cooler uh, with serendipity. And if you give them enough time, enough collisions will occur, but we just don't have the time. I mean, the intentionality is, is the key in the way that you present it, correct? Correct. That's exactly correct. And what you said earlier about 
you know, elevating the human in the uh, effort of problem solving. That is the last advantage, you know, uh, today around humans. Like we, we have the creativity, the judgment skills, the wisdom, the ability to solve and plan and think ahead and create. Um, and technology can give uh, certainly, you know, data and data warehouses and so on and so forth can, can give temporary advantage. Well, it's a very, it's a very hopeful book in that, in that respect, because I think what you're doing is you're opening up a, a door or a window, whatever metaphor you want to use into a, a different way of thinking about the value that we create as human beings, especially in, in a, in a time when we feel so overwhelmed by the technology and, and the data. And I, I think that, that to me is a very hopeful message. Can I ask you questions as authors, uh, not as consultants, but as authors, whenever authors write a book and you've done a marvelous job with cracking complexity, there is, it takes a life of its own on. And there's these, there are these aha moments uh, when someone comes back to you after they've read the book and they say something to you which, which really takes you by surprise. It wasn't how you had intended the book perhaps, or it may have been an aspiration of the book, but it always is wonderful to hear people sort of interpret the book through their own lens. What are some of the aha moments that you've had so far? I know the book is relatively new, uh, but there must be some of those that you've already experienced. What were they like? What were they? As we set out to write this, we were writing a formula, a 10-step formula, whose uh, individual steps uh, together produce amazing results um, by, the, you know, by the end of its application. What has shocked me in a great way is, um, first of all, realizing, having written it all down, uh, just how valuable the individual steps are and how applicable they are. Um, on their own. So if you do nothing but sort of apply step two, which is about expressing your complexity as a challenge, you're going to be far better at getting started on things uh, than you are today or framing meetings in ways that are interesting and compelling to people. And so that was sort of the observation as we finished the book, as we started to talk to people, that's the experience I'm hearing a lot about from people who, you know, may not be facing massive complexities but they know that their organization does and they they see things in the book and the individual steps that if if we just started doing that if we just started having critics in meetings whose one job is to listen to people and then uh offer a challenge to the group during a couple of intermittent moments during the meeting we're gonna have better meetings and i love that i want to start applying that that's been my surprise david i don't know if you have something different to answer yeah david Comlos, what about you what were your aha moments uh, you know, I've had a few people say that David looks better in the picture and the inside <laughs> top of uh, the That was an aha moment. That was definitely an aha moment. I, I, I share David's aha moment, which is, you know, uh, he said it very well. The aggregate of the formula is, is just this power tool in, in solving big challenges uh, in all manner of organization, all manner of mandate, and yet people find... Um, meaningful value in the individual steps in the formula, even when they're disconnected from all the other steps. Mm. It, you've done a wonderful job. I, I think you've captured the essence of, of the present moment that we inhabit, which again, is one that I think in many ways frightens us because we don't have the tools to deal with it. And you've created, I think in Cracking Complexity, a toolkit that helps us to navigate a, uh, a very difficult, uncertain, and complex future. Uh, David Komlos, David Benjamin, thank you both so much for joining us on Foresight Radio today. Thank you so Thanks much, Tom. That was David Benjamin and David Komlos on Cracking Complexity. To find out more about the authors and their book, just check out the links on the Foresight Radio homepage at foresightradio.com. Thanks again to our sponsors for this episode of Foresight Radio, Wasabi. 
take a look at how Wasabi is changing the rules of the game for cloud storage at wasabi.com. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to Foresight Radio and to share it with your friends and your colleagues. This is Tom Kolopoulos. I look forward to joining you again soon for another episode of Foresight Radio, where we explore the future of how we will live, work, and play in the 21st century.